Amen. So, um, how many of you have ever gone on a vacation and come back more tired? Yeah? How about every vacation, right? Same, totally same. So I was actually looking online to find out about this phenomenon and see if anybody else had experienced it, not just me. And I actually came across something that's called leisure sickness. Anybody heard of leisure sickness before? Okay, and I quote, it is the condition of developing symptoms of sickness during weekends or holidays and was first identified by Dutch psychologists Ad Vingerhoots and Mikey Van Hoogenfort. I'm sorry if there are any Dutch people here today. That's okay. And it is slightly more prevalent in men than in women. Makes, right? <laughs> to some women, it makes a lot of sense. Symptoms include, and I quote, headache, acute fatigue, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, cold or flu, sore or aching muscles or joints, depression, irritability, anxiety, to name a few, specifically during their vacations and on weekends, and it goes on, whatever the case may be, the symptoms dissipate once the person returns to work or gets back to their usual routine. This list of adverse events can also describe a similar condition affecting some new retirees. <laughs> awesome. Has anybody ever experienced leisure sickness? I know that I have, and I would submit that we actually have no idea how to enjoy life. Even when we are given opportunities to rest, we have this thing called the weekend, right? Which is not in the Bible anywhere. It just kind of is a product of our society. Even when we're given these opportunities, rest escapes us. We would agree that not being at our jobs is a good way to start rest, but that's something to stop. What about something to practice? What about actual practices that bring deep, satisfying rest? This is what the Sabbath, or Shabbat in Hebrew, was designed to be. And we talk about our need for it in different ways we talk about like, you know, unplugging or taking a mental health day. All of us know that this is something that we should be doing because our society today in, in America, it is a work-addicted culture and what author Ronald Rollheiser calls corrupted by pathological busyness. Does anybody feel that this morning? The reality is that if our day-to-day -day routine does not get interrupted by something, this monotony of busyness will never stop. In other words, without an interruption, we will never reach a good stopping point, which is why the Sabbath exists. The word in Hebrew actually means interruption. We have a screen behind me. That's what it looks like in Hebrew. So if I say Shabbat or Sabbath this morning, you'll know I'm meaning the same thing. And the definition of this Hebrew word is to interrupt or to cause something to cease. And there's no like, you know, magic in saying the Hebrew word. It just is what it actually means, okay? So if anybody ever tells you that there's like magic in like Hebrew blessings, run away, okay? Some, some people think that or just smile and nod, okay? So I'll use these words interchangeably throughout. And the Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel says that the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of joy and anticipation of the future. 
Most of us think of the Sabbath as looking backwards or of enjoying present rest, but he says it's supposed to look to the future. And another Jewish writer who's a little bit more modern than Heschel is a a columnist for the New York Times named Judith Shulevitz. And she says this about the Sabbath. Bear with me, it's a little bit long. It says, We have the Sabbath to thank for labor legislation and for our belief that it is wrong for employers to drive their employees until they drop from exhaustion. So what do we do today with this remarkable heritage, which in the last century expanded to a generous two days, right, the weekend, rather than just one? Much more than our ancestors could have imagined and much, much less. We relax on the run, and in rare bursts of free time, we recreate. We choose from a dizzying array of leisure options and pursue them with an exemplary degree of professionalism and perfectionism. We rush our children from activity to activity, their days a blur of tight connections, and not even our group leisure activities can do for us what the Sabbath rituals could once be counted on to do. Religious rituals do not exist simply to promote togetherness. They are theater. They are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are without our even quite noticing that they are doing so. Doesn't that sound a little bit closer to the rest that we'd like to experience? It is available to us today in the practice that the Bible calls Sabbath. So before we actually look at how Jesus interacted with the Sabbath, we have to understand where it came from. Our story for today from the New Testament book of Mark just assumes that we know the backstory of what the Sabbath is all about as Jesus interacts with it. But the origins of the Sabbath go back to the beginning itself at creation. Genesis chapters 2 Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Creation was complete. Notice it doesn't say that God punched out at 5 p.m. after a long day, right? He, it was a blessing. He blessed his creation with rest after he was finished. That means that life in the Garden of Eden, the world as God intended it, was perpetual rest. There was still work that was required of humanity, of Adam and Eve, but it was not laborious. It was not toil. And some of us think that heaven, whenever you get there, will be perpetual vacation. Gross. (laughs) Ew, right? That is not it because work is actually a part of God's design. The Hebrew word for work is the same as the Hebrew word for worship. It's avodah. They're the same. And God's rest that he instituted at the very foundation of the world was supposed to give us three things. Provision, purpose, and presence. Provision in that our needs are being met by God and not ourselves. Purpose in that everything that we do has meaning 
and can be worshipful, and presence because it is only in God's presence that we can experience true rest and joy. So the Sabbath is that interruption of our regular rhythms. But then another interruption happened, which the Bible calls sin. Theologically, it's called the fall. When sin entered the world, that perpetual rest was interrupted. And work became toil rather than worship. So if the Sabbath is God's gift to his creation... And that rest from the Sabbath was interrupted by sin. There needed to be some guidelines for how humanity was to enjoy that rest with the presence of sin in the world. So you get a gift, you have to open it. You get a good gift and it comes with instructions for how to use it, right? So in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, when Israel has been delivered from Egypt and is experiencing freedom from slavery before they're given what's called the Torah or the law, which are God's rules for how Israel was ought to live, ought to live. They experience this phenomenon of magical bread from heaven called manna. Some of you might remember us talking about that a few weeks ago. In the wilderness, they get this like magic bread and that's how they're supposed to live because they're in the middle of the desert. But there was a condition on how they were to enjoy it in light of the Sabbath. Exodus 16 says, Six days you shall gather it, the manna. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And this command was given by God before the Sabbath law was instituted in what is known as the Ten Commandments. So in their time after their slavery, God was training the Israelites to trust him to provide for them after their liberation, rather than just to obey him out of a fear of punishment. And as we said, if the Sabbath was God's gift to humanity, what is our responsibility? To open it and to read the instructions. <laughs> a gift must first be opened. The, the, opened the Israelites were required not to enjoy the Sabbath on their terms, but on God's terms. The Sabbath, while some of us think of it as just rules and regulations, it is not meant to be a prison that confines, but a present to be opened. And a good gift has instructions for how we're supposed to use it, right? So a couple years ago, my daughter had her birthday. I think she was turning five, and she got a brand new bike. And I opened the box, and it said, 95% assembled. And I was like, oh, great. I'm not a very handy person. And so I take it out, and I'm like getting ready to like say, okay, what is this? And it looks like a lot more than 5% <laughs> that needs to be assembled. And I'm like, oh, great. It took me like two hours to do that 5%. But I did it. 
I, I pushed through and she's riding her bike, but what if I decided not to put it together according to the instructions? Disaster, right? If I put it together and didn't tighten the handlebars all the way or didn't tighten the wheels on, she would go on that ride and she would never want to ride her bike again. And as a dad, that's like your worst fear. It's like, no, get back up, try again. No, so I put it together according to the instructions and that is how we are supposed to enjoy God's rest according to the instructions that he has laid out. And it is not a prison, a prison rather, that confines us, but a present to enjoy. So how did we stray so far from these good intentions that God wanted us to enjoy from the Sabbath? It is because of sin that we have a lack of genuine relationship with God which causes us to revert to fear-based obedience rather than trusting in him. Humanity, on the whole, whether you're religious or not, we have religious hearts. And we'd much rather check the box on our to-do list than be silent enough to let God speak when we are resting. So there are many innovations in the Jewish tradition that help us observe Shabbat today that are actually beautiful and have roots in this intention of God for us, for purpose, for presence, and for provision. And many of these innovations do have good intentions, but they are also distractions from a relationship with God. So some of these positive commands that I actually still do with my family today because I believe that they're, they help us celebrate Sabbath one is preparing what is known as a challah, which if you've ever had before, it's like this braided, fluffy, beautiful bread that helps us enjoy and remember God's presence with us. I'm on Whole30 right now, so I'm not actually having challah on Shabbat, but I hope to return to that in 12 days. I think 12 days. I'm praying that it ends sooner. Anyway, um, another one, if you've ever seen in a Jewish home, if you've ever been with people on Shabbat, is we light candles, which welcomes the presence of the Sabbath. We sing blessings. We say prayers. It's actually a really beautiful celebration that helps us interrupt our weeks to enjoy God's rest. And I'm not telling you to do any of this stuff. This is the stuff that my family and I do, but you have to discover what allows you to interrupt your week to enjoy God's rest. For a lot of us, it's coming to church on Sunday. For some of us, it's turning off our phone or not even bringing our phone with us to places that we go, right? There's actually, if you want, um, come see me afterwards. I'll show you this really cool website that I found called The Common Rule, which any of you have ever heard of that. It's a good way to like practice regular rhythms throughout your week so you're not constantly interrupted by lots of things. But there are also, along with the positive commands, a lot of negative prohibitions that were developed as innovations within Jewish tradition that you're supposed to refrain from on the Sabbath. And this is usually what Sabbath in Jewish tradition is more known for, right? Like, you're not supposed to do all of these things. In fact, there are 39 prohibited labors on the Sabbath, which includes all creative activity or basic work. And there they are on the screen behind me. They include carrying something from your house, 
cooking, cooking food, making a fire, which includes driving a car, right? So if you've ever seen religious Jewish people walking to synagogue on the Sabbath, it's because they live within walking distance of their synagogue so they don't have to drive on the Sabbath. Or if you've ever been to like New York City or Brooklyn, like a really Jewish area, and you've gone on an elevator on Saturday, you've probably experienced that the elevator seems like it's acting a little bit funny. And that is because instead of allowing the Jewish people who live in that area to press the button, which would create a fire of electricity, it stops on every single floor of the building. Right? So these are some of the like negative things that Jewish people are taught to refrain from in order to practice the Sabbath. So that is what the Sabbath is like today. But what about in Jesus' time? So aside from the whole like elevators part, the Shabbat practices back then in the first century look very similar to how they do today with a few changes. First off, Everybody went to the synagogue to study the Torah. And there was teaching from the Torah, and in Jesus' days it would have been done in Aramaic because that was the language that the Bible was translated to. And there is prayer, and there is liturgy, and it's always reciting something known as the great Shema, which some of you may have heard before. It's Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And there would have been songs and things like that, but there were also restrictions, things that you could not do or you'd be guilty of breaking the Sabbath, which is breaking the Torah. And that includes some of the things that were on the screen before, lighting a fire, the number of steps that you could walk on the Sabbath. And these prohibitions began to serve the institution of the Sabbath rather than serving the Lord of the Sabbath. At its best, it was the Jewish people's sincere desire to obey God in every capacity. And at its worst, it is a display of the self-reliance and religion of humanity, always wanting measurable ways to be in control. And Jesus, we're told, celebrated the Sabbath every week while he was on the earth. In Luke chapter 4 Verse 16, it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So we see that Jesus actually taught frequently in the synagogues on the Sabbath. That was one of the ways that he taught the people. So the conflicts in the New Testament are not about whether Jesus and his disciples observed the Sabbath, but how Jesus exercised authority over it. And now we come to our passage for the day, where we find two separate conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees over interpretation of the Sabbath and what it is all about. The first one has to do with grain. So we pick up in verse 23. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way... His disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, 
The Pharisees could just be on a leisurely stroll on the Sabbath, but more than likely, they are keeping watch on Jesus, just waiting to point out an error. Do you have anybody like that in your own life? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. Anyway, so Jesus and his disciples get accused of what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So what is it that is not lawful? According to the restrictions of the day that we mentioned earlier, they broke three of those 39 commandments. They were reaping the grain, threshing the crop, and preparing food. So according to those regulations, the Pharisees were correct. But Jesus responds with a story from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21. He says in verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with them. What is the correlation here? Is this conflict just about Jesus having a more relaxed or lenient interpretation of the law? Is he just trying to get the Pharisees off his disciples' backs? No, he is teaching them. Even the Pharisees who are out to get him, he is teaching them and using this story to draw them back to the purpose of the Sabbath. Provision, purpose, and presence. He talks about what David did when, verse 25, it says, when he was in need. Jesus points out that both his disciples and David's disciples were in need on the Sabbath. Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees that in their efforts to obey God's law, they are neglecting to notice something, that their neighbors are in need and yet they are blind. Hence, Jesus' follow-up statement in the story in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And with this very simple statement, Jesus is restoring the Sabbath to its original created intention, rescuing it from the hearts of religious people. The commands of Shabbat were never meant to override human need. But he doesn't just leave it there. In verse 28, he says, So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So, lest we think that it was just a matter of interpretation, Jesus cuts to the real issue, which is his identity. The Son of Man is how he referred to himself. And this Old Testament story about David that Jesus chose to bring up tells us a few crucial things. First of all, it wasn't just anybody breaking the Sabbath. It was the king. It was King David. And it wasn't just any food. It was the bread in the tabernacle, which is where God's presence dwelled. So in other words, Jesus is agreeing with the Pharisees that what they're doing is not 
lawful unless you're talking to the one who is in charge. And that is very much what Jesus is saying here. So that's the first conflict. Now the second conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees starts in chapter three, verse one. It says, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So a very similar scene is playing out, but this time in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are watching Jesus. It's a total setup. But there's this person, once again, who is in need, right in front of their eyes. This time, a lot more obvious to everybody in the room. A man is standing in the middle of the synagogue with a physical infirmity. But just in case the Pharisees missed this man in need, Jesus brings the guy out in front of everybody. In verse three, it says, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus is inviting the Pharisees out of their religious blindness. Do you see his compassion for them, even in the midst of their spiritual pride? He draws out the principle that he just taught. The Sabbath was made for man, for this man, as he brings him out. But what is their response? Verse four, they were silent. And Jesus' heart breaks for these men as he perceives their motives and as they kept silent and his righteous anger at their hypocrisy and their sin burns as this miraculous healing that he is about to do testifies to their hardened hearts. In verse five, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So notice, Jesus doesn't actually do anything. He's not actually guilty of breaking the Sabbath. He just says the words, and the guy is healed. It's the man who stretches out his hand. But the Pharisees' bias was already confirmed against him. And what is their response? In verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Do you see the irony here? The Pharisees confront Jesus about disobeying the law, but Jesus confronts the Pharisees about disobeying God himself. Jesus is upholding the Sabbath and its intentions by restoring life, but the Pharisees eventually desecrate the Sabbath by plotting Jesus' death. And lest we shake our heads at the Pharisees and go, oh, those stupid guys, we need to remember something. 
Scripture always tells us stories of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, not so that we can feel superior to them, but for the exact opposite reason. They are mirrors for us. Their religious hypocrisy is ours. The Pharisees are doing to the Sabbath what all of humanity has done since the Garden of Eden. We take God's good gifts and we squeeze the blessing out of it until it becomes distorted by our religious hearts to the point that it is not recognizable anymore. Trying to be God, refusing to allow him to disrupt our hurried way of life, refusing to accept the gift that he is offering us, ultimately pointing out this hypocrisy in the Pharisees and pointing them back to the gift of what God is trying to give them is what cost Jesus his life as they plot his death. The gift of the Sabbath can only be surpassed by the gift that Jesus gave when he offered up his life for our sin, for our hypocrisy, for our rebellion against the true king. And Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees about the condition of their hearts and their inability to receive this gift from God is just as hard for us to receive today as it was back then. For any of us who think that we actually do this rest thing pretty well, I think Jesus would have some words for us. G.K. Chesterton says the same thing. He says, Whatever else is true, it is emphatically not true that the ideas of Jesus of Nazareth were suitable to his time but are no longer suitable to our time. Exactly how suitable they were to his time is perhaps suggested in the end of his story. When have we been challenged by God's word and likewise responded with stubbornness, with silence, and with religious hypocrisy? We need this Sabbath rest just as much as anyone. But we refuse God's gift of the Sabbath, and when we do that, we exchange everything that the Sabbath was supposed to be about provision, purpose, and God's presence for three other things. We exchange it for selfishness, pride, and idolatry. Instead of God's gifts, these are the things that we replace them with. Instead of God's provision, first of all, we try to provide for ourselves. Not acknowledging that our provision comes from God and that it is not dependent on us. Sometimes we don't rest because we believe that it does depend on us. I can't take that day off. I can't even call in sick. When we recognize our dependence on God, we are saved from our own efforts to be God, to provide for ourselves, to be our own sustainer. This gives rest. But not only do we try to provide ourselves for ourselves physically, we try to provide for ourselves spiritually as well. And instead of God's purpose, we forsake what is truly important, which is spiritual pride. For some of us, our work 
We can't stop because it provides our very meaning itself. We don't know who we are if we're not doing our job. So rest in this case means realizing that our true worth and value are not determined by us. And like we are reminded in this passage, sometimes instead of our days of rest being all about us, God brings people into our lives to interrupt our rhythms, people that we can help. Even on our day off, when it is inconvenient, because that is what the Sabbath is all about, God's provision. So just like the Pharisees are watching Jesus like a hawk and can only see a broken rule when Jesus interrupts his own Sabbath to care for somebody else, they fail to see a broken man which reveals their broken hearts. So what catches our attention even when we're trying to have a day off on our weekend? When we look at the world, are we allowing God to interrupt us in different ways with people that he brings into our lives who need to experience him. Now, I'm not saying don't have boundaries, right? Jesus is a good model of this as well. In the Gospels, it says that Jesus withdrew often to a desolate place to pray. So this is also a good model of rest as well. But Jesus knew the balance of being interrupted and interrupting his own rhythms to withdraw. And lastly, instead of God's presence, we make idols because we do not know what is best for us. We don't know how to rest. And our definition of rest is very different from the one that God has for us. If it was up to us, for some of us, we'd probably sit on the couch binging Netflix until we fall asleep, and that is our definition of rest. But God has a different one for us. We cannot capitulate to the definitions of rest that we see all around us. There's a sociologist who recently did a study on how Christians engage with their work. And this is what he says. It may be the case that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. So this practice of Sabbath rest is for reorienting our perspective to how much we need God. We don't just need these practices. We need God himself. But we cannot allow our religious behavior to inhibit our relationship with him. Even good behaviors can get in the way. Now, I'm not saying go out to brunch instead of come to church, okay? You didn't hear me say that. But... We're not trying to, you know, be legalistic about it. But what is our motivation behind the practices that we institute? Whether it's practicing things like reading the Bible or praying or even coming to church 
Or do we kind of like forsake all of those things because we're just worried that those things are going to become legalistic for us? We need to admit that we don't actually know what our needs are and that God does. All of our attempts to find satisfaction apart from him only end up enslaving us. Finding our rest in things other than him is futile to begin with. And Pastor Tim Keller in New York says this, anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even a self-imposed one. Your own heart or a materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or all of the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. So how do we do it? If we're in agreement that Sabbath and rest that God provides, not necessarily like on a specific day every single time, but that the practice of Sabbath itself is good and that we need this rest, how do we do it? Well, as we've seen, it's not by practicing the laws of the Sabbath or by being lenient on the Sabbath, but by knowing the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is in the person of Jesus that this rest is offered and found even today. Jesus' life of rest, of interrupting our own religious rhythms of hurry and exhaustion and leisure sickness, it is available to us right now. But we will never be in a place where it is convenient. It cannot be stapled on to our current mode of existence. It is an entirely new life. And that life is available to us today. Would you pray with me?